Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever, whenever you are. This is the Silmarillion Film Project. What are we on? Is it episode 26? 26, is that right? yes. No. 26, yeah. Yep. Holy moly. Yep. This is not Dave Kale, and I think I say that every time. This is Trish Lambert. <laughs> Dave is on daddy duty tonight. He may join us later, but I am joined by uh, Corey Olson. Why did I? I was going to say Christopher Olson. Where did that come from? Corey Olson. Christopher Tolkien, Corey Olson. Yeah, right. Being combined together with Christopher Tolkien. Yeah, wow. You know, that's pretty awesome. And our awesome uh, representative team, Nick Palazzo, Marie Prosser, and Rhiannon. I don't know your last name. I just realized that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, wait. Sire. Is it Sire? Is that how I pronounce it? Sire? C-I-R-E? It's actually Sire. Sire? Sire. Okay. Ran and Sear. We learned something tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Here anyway, here we go. We're going to be going through some more scripts. Absolutely. I'm really excited to get back to the scripts. I've been really enjoying reading these and uh, looking forward to talking about them some more. We did uh, episodes one and two last time, except we skipped some bits. And then uh, we got into talking kind of about three and four, but where there are some things from both of those that we didn't really get through. And we're going to come back to a bit here today. Uh, the goal is to see if we can get through six uh, tonight, not six this evening, but two episode six by the end of this evening. That's the goal. Um, just a, a couple quick announcements. First, uh, this is the last week of our fall fundraising campaign. Um, so we have our campaign finale starting at noon Eastern time on October 19th this coming Saturday. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join me for that. The registration link is on uh, the, uh, uh, the events page or on our fund page as well. Uh, or you can, of course, just show up on our Twitch channel as well, where we will also be broadcasting there. Um, and at our finale, we're going to be doing our drawings, our sort of uh, special donor appreciation drawings uh, for all of those of you who follow along with our broadcasts and uh, uh, and, uh, and and donate to support. Uh, help support Signum University and keep things going. Um, so I just wanted to remind you, uh, if you are a donor at Signum, if you've made a donation or if you have an ongoing monthly donation, um, send an email to donate at signumu.org and just mention that you would like to enter uh, the drawing. Mention that you heard about this on Silm Film and we'll enter you into the Silm Film drawing because the grand prize winner of our drawing is going to get a veto, which I know our script team knows exactly how valuable that would be, right? To just get a unilateral veto to cancel any crazy idea uh, that we come out with that we decide is what we really want to do. And you can just say, nope, I'm invoking my veto. We're not doing that. So, uh, anyway, that's the grand prize, uh, film film, uh, uh, grand prize, uh, for our drawing. So again, donate at signumu.org and you can, uh, uh, and you can enter the drawing there. Um, just again, just mention some film, uh, in the email and that's all. Anyway, so, um, we are also in the middle of our fall regional moot season. Uh, we, I was just in Iowa this past weekend uh, enjoying middle moot with a whole bunch of people, uh, which was uh, super fun. We had a little uh, uh, a little fun film uh, film discussion there. Um, and uh, I was um, 
Yeah, I, I just I always I always enjoy uh, meeting meeting folks. Yeah, Aslan's Compass says it was it was fun but cold. Yeah, it was freezing out there. We actually had to like de-ice my plane when I was flying home on on Monday morning. It was very very cold in Iowa this past weekend. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a great time at Middle Moot. Um, this fall, we've got uh, uh, one moot uh, that we're doing. We were going to do Magnolia Moot in the fall, too. We've decided to shift that to the spring. Um, uh, it, that'll work out much better for the venue. So I think it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big improvement. So that's going to be in April now. Um, but Bay Moot is still coming up in November. So um, we will have more full information on that uh, soon on at signumuniversity.org slash events. Uh, you'll be able to find information about Bay Moot. Um, and then, of course, in the spring, we have our full set of spring moots coming up to Texas, uh, Los Angeles, um, and uh, Orlando and uh, Magnolia Mooch down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, all that stuff uh, is going to be uh, is going to be happening um, in uh, uh, in the spring. So uh, lots of really great opportunities. I hope that if you get a chance, if there's a moot near you, uh, I hope that you uh, take the chance to come because I love meeting folks uh, and it's always a really good time hanging out together. So, let us talk about the script reviews. Uh, so we have uh, uh, we have our, our our three folks from our script team with us again tonight: uh, Marie, Nick, and Rhiannon. Um, so, Rhiannon, you had mentioned before we started, uh, reminded me of something which I had been wanting to do anyway, which is that we hadn't talked about the frame at all. Uh, even though we talked about episodes one and two, we sort of totally neglected the frame, which, of course, as uh, Nick pointed out, is not the first time that we've done that. Um, so let's start off talking about the frame. What are your, you guys' reflections on the frame? Did you Were there things that you were... Um, that you particularly liked about the way the frame came together, especially for the, you know, for say the first, uh, first three, four episodes, um, were there things you guys were kind of uncertain about? How did you feel about it? One of the challenges for the frame is that the inclination is to include all the characters that were ever mentioned to be anywhere (laughs) near Lake town at any point in time. And we only have a few minutes per episode. So what we really wanted to do was to give some quality time to whichever characters we did, incorporate mm-hmm. and um, to kind of let the audience get to know them and appreciate them in this context because it's very easy to be like Gandalf, Bilbo, these are awesome characters, people will love them but we're not putting them on screen very much so they have to love right. them in the scene right. <laughs> you right. know? so that was our, our goal was to kind of showcase them in a good way Yeah, yeah. we also did a lot of um, unauthorized world building um, we developed <laughs> Some really interesting concepts, particularly that. about dwarven culture. Yes. Um, for one thing, we were trying to figure out how, like, what the political structure mm-hmm. of that area would look like, because you mm-hmm. have all these these clashing cultures here. Right. And one thing we came out with was this idea that while you know dwarven tradesmen like own are like self contained, right? They like they own their own shops and all that. The mines belong to the king. Okay. Right? And so, like, stuff that's brought up from the mines belongs to the king, which means that tradesmen then have to, instead of him, like, levying a bunch of taxes on them personally, right, they have to buy their supplies from him. Okay. So that's what Dan does instead of taxes? 
Well, on his own people. On Obviously, own people. anybody right. like, you know, traveling through down a Dwarvish road, one would expect there to be a fair toll, obviously. Right. right. You know, because he also owns the roads, as the king typically does. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, it was really funny. I was thinking about that comment that George R. R. Martin made, you know, uh, recently when he was talking about Tolkien again and was uh, saying that, you know, he had always wanted to know what Aragorn's tax policy was and everything. And I was kind of laughing. I was remembering that and kind of laughing about that when I was reading the all the stuff about the taxes and Dale and everything. And I'm like, well, yeah. George R. R. Martin would love this, right? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, we're, we're going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do think that I shared George R. R. Martin's um, love for like the socioeconomic political things that happen in these stories that are kind of glo- they are kind of glossed over sure, in a lot of Tolkien's work, which isn't a criticism. It's just that's not what he was interested in, which is fine. It yeah. happens to be something I am interested in, so I have a tendency to kind of backfill <laughs> that stuff into the stories. Yeah, and, um, and you know, especially like uh, it, like Lake Town is the only time when Tolkien ever went close to that. Right. We're, you know, mentioning tolls and 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 taxes and, uh, uh, you know, money bags and the the old master like that. That's um, the only I mean, if you want to look for like references to economics in Tolkien, like Lake Town is most of it. Right. So. um, And the rest of it's in the Shire and the rest of it's in the Shire. Yeah. And even they're fairly vague. Yeah. you know, I mean, that is like comments like, you know, Farmer Cotton saying that it turned out he already did own a good deal more than was good for him. Right. I mean, what exactly does that mean? Um, and the whole borrowing and sharing business. But yes. there's a lot more borrowing than sharing going right, on. Right. Isn't there always? Um, but anyway, yeah. No. So. So. OK. So. So I'm just make because not all of this, of course, came out explicitly in this. I, you know, in the early these early episodes so far, it's been mostly about the Dale taxes. Right. Um so the so the king owns the products of the mines and the craftsmen have to um so the the people who are who are digging in the mines right are paid for their labor right, and, right. but what they get is owned by the king so you have to purchase right. it from the king so that's right. so he doesn't levy taxes on the dwarves but he does own all the materials Right. So, like, if you can imagine, it would be pretty difficult. Like, they only have the one mountain in this particular kingdom, right? And they're digging further. It would be a little strange for, like, individual mining outfits to be kind of competing over. I mean, you could that could happen, but it would be a little, it's it's pretty tight in there. Right. You know? Right. Although maybe that's something that might have happened in a place like Moria, for example, which is a little bit more expansive. Um but at least in Erebor, we kind of like the everything about the descriptions of the treasure and everything suggests that the king under the mountain owns all that stuff. Right. Like that it belongs to him. Sure. Uh, so that seemed relatively logical um, as far as that was concerned. You know, we developed this whole idea of like this market that gets set up. Outside, outside the gates the of gates. dale yeah, yeah. right because um while you know the while bard certainly has control over tr- uh, you know articles coming into the city he can't really tell the dwarves what they can and can't sell outside right right and so this be- there becomes kind of this duty free zone out there okay 
Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Here. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, so there winds up being some conflict there. Um, the elves, and I think this came from you guys, actually. I, I can't really remember where this idea came from. The elves have kind of shut down the old forest road, the, the forest road. So the dwarves can't get any real trade out to, you know, the Blue Mountains, you know, without going all the way up and over Mirkwood, mm-hmm. which has its own dangers, obviously, because, right. you know, you have the descriptions in The Hobbit of goblins and hobgoblins and orcs there, you know, like yeah. they're not of the, the same thing. description. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We basically wanted to have each group have their own interest and their own um, conflicts that were trying to be resolved throughout the season, but we couldn't go too far with it because, again, in five minutes of an episode, we're not going to have a trade conference where everyone sits down and argues about this for five hours. (laughs) Um, So it was the, we wanted to kind of introduce tension without maybe getting into too many nitty gritty details outside of the specific events in which we introduced in the, right. in the whereas the like detailed resolutions that wind up fixing the problems are kind of those happen off screen because like quite honestly like nobody really needs to know exactly what the details of the trade agreement are between right. bard and dane you know that doesn't right. need to be on screen anyway Sure. And, you know, and I like the fact that one of the things um, uh, one of the things that we sort of saw, like one of the realities that Bilbo is confronted with when he gets to Dale is, you know, it's one thing to say like, oh, like everyone is prospering and the city is being rebuilt and everything. But there's you know, that doesn't just happen. You know, like you've got to. even, you know, even when they were talking, I mean, even like the, the kind of discussion at the end of uh, of The Hobbit of like how Dan used his treasure wisely, you know, and uh, like, OK, so they've got lots of gold from the dragon treasure. But like now what? You know, how are they going to use that? How does how does this actually work? And the way in which, you know, I mean, it, it does bring up, you know, given that we're having an and I'm sorry, I, I'm remi- I'm remembering now and I meant to say like 15 minutes ago. um uh, someone, I think Aslan's Compass on Twitch was, uh, oh yeah, yeah, exactly, was saying, uh, can we have a reminder about what the topic of the frame is? Because some people don't remember. And the topic of the frame uh, is, frame is Bilbo is going with Balin and Gandalf back to Erebor on his, one, on his visit back to the mountain that he tells Frodo about later. Um, and the occasion is the seven-year, um, the seven-year uh, uh commemoration like the the celebration of the death of the dragon and the reestablishment of Dale and everything so everyone is is kind of getting back together again um uh and they're meeting in Dale so it's we're going to have we're going to have bard we're going to have dan we're going to have the elven king uh and so but there are going to be kind of tensions uh still there and i i i really like the way that you guys were kind of bringing up some of the it's not just about um, so like one of the things that I always find most unsatisfactory in a sequel, right? Um, I really dislike it when at the end of a, like the original story, everything gets like tied neatly together, right? And then in order to begin the sequel, everything was tied so neatly together that they start the sequel by basically just kind of 
rolling it back, right? And being like, oh yeah, those things which seem to be tied up really neatly actually weren't, right? I hate that. Exactly. I really hate that. It's like, come on, like come up with a new story. You got to do better than that. So rather than just saying like, hey, after the Battle of Five Armies, you know, we all agreed to get together. And then now we're coming back and being like, yeah, well, except we kind of didn't, right? You need to do more than that. So that's that was my favorite element of the... um, of the 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 hold like tax story <laughs> is that it it shows how you know like this isn't easy you know rebuilding Erebor rebuilding Dale is gonna like it's not easy and and there's gonna be difficulties like there's gonna be um, you know they're not gonna be on the same page they're both gonna be trying in their different ways and the, that's gonna create conflicts and things so even though they all still kind of you know are you know they haven't backtracked from the end of the of the Battle of Five Armies but um, um, but but still there are issues so I really kind of like that. Yeah, Oakwig is mentioning Dune Messiah. Yeah, that's actually kind of what I did really dislike. That's one of the things that really turned me off uh, of the Dune sequels right away, actually. But yes, I won't get too distracted on that one. But yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that got me a little bit nervous about rescuing Mythros in episode one of this mm-hmm. of this season, or, or certainly doing it too quickly or too easily uh, was... You know, having like this big moment where it's like, oh no, my voice is hanging from a cliff. How did this happen? To ah, no, he's fine. It's everything's fine. It's okay. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, one quick thing that I forgot to mention from the from episode one. So there was a scene that we did where um, where you first see Thorindor. Um, before he makes contact with Fingon mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. and you just see this ginormous eagle perched up on uh, Thangoradrim, watching Fingon clutching a deer in his talons. Mm-hmm. So it shows a that like he's scale. huge, <laughs> right? Right. Right. And B, like to kind of cast some aspersions, at least in the mind of the audience, as to as to what this guy is doing here, mm-hmm. uh, especially mm-hmm. since we did a very very quick line at the beginning where Morgoth was telling his guys to send the Watchers out to send out their spies. So we wanted to kind of give some tension as to who Thorinder was. Right. Uh, there was some question as to what kind of deer it would be, and this is just ca- to kind of give you an idea of the kind of things that we have to think about. And somebody really wanted it to be a reindeer because it was up so far north and sure, sure reindeer. And I said, okay, yeah, it could be a reindeer. I have no problem with that. But we can't say reindeer in the outlines because we're going to send the outlines to the host. And we already have a problem where we're trying not to make the host think of the appearance of Thorndor as funny. And if it <laughs> says reindeer, they're immediately going to think of Santa Claus, yeah, right. which is going to be hilarious. Now, the reality of the situation is that... We- see a reindeer like a real reindeer you don't associate that with santa claus like there that doesn't actually happen no but the word reindeer is so associated (laughs) with christmas and santa claus in american culture that it would be impossible to separate those two on paper it really so i can i can tell you this now after the fact (laughs) and i'd be fine with it being a reindeer yeah, but there was yeah. no way I could put on paper and send to you guys. Hey, that's what the word caribou is for. That's what the word caribou is for. Exactly. Uh, Sharon is suggesting uh, it would be even better if it were actually Thranduil's moose mount. 
that he was holding in his, you know, like, yeah, exactly, the Irish, the Irish moose, exactly, uh, the same, larger yeah. than a, yeah, than a yeah. reindeer or anything. Yeah, yeah, we just have him be a casualty in that first episode, and then we don't have to worry about him later on. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but anyway, back to the episodes that we're actually talking about. Right. Good. So anyway, uh, so frame taxes, backstory, world building. You guys were doing. Um, but anyway, yeah, I really liked all this stuff. Tell me about. Tell me about this. I was really interested in Dis's inclusion here, and I loved the kind of parallel to um, the meeting between Thorin and and yeah. Gandalf that you guys did, right? When we yeah. have we have this unexpected meeting with Dis on the road, uh, yeah. except it goes very differently, right? And there's a little Lobelia in Dis yeah. also, yeah, you know, and she's not wrong to be aggrieved, and Gandalf does kind of like yada yada her concerns. Which is very Gandalf of him, you know, because, like, he doesn't care about money and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. We wanted a character who had experienced loss and grief um, because this is a commemoration of a battle. Yes. And we didn't want the commemoration of the battle just to be like, and on to the new world. And so sorry about those lost guys, but they don't matter. <laughs> you know, like, we, we needed someone who was living in the past in that way. And she seemed right. the ideal character for that, Absolutely. seeing as she lost both her sons and her brother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody for whom the, this is that event, you know, the battle of five of five armies would not be, you know, there, there's no one for whom it would be more, you know, grievous, more just like, I mean, it was a great moment and, and surely she can even, even she can sort of see that this was an important moment in Dwarvish history. But I mean, goodness, um, it is, it was her whole family was wiped out, both of her kids and, and, and her brother. I mean, that's a huge deal. And one of the things that comes out later on is this idea of it, it's not just her loss of her family, but also her legacy, you yeah. know, and that's very important to the Dwarves, at least in this version that we're creating is is their legacy that that you know that survives them their works their you know the training that they pass on to other other dwarves <clears throat> and essentially that's just gone for her yeah her entire life yeah i mean you think about the genealogy you know i see like visually picture the genealogy of of thorns folk in the appendix right in appendix a and um, you know, like the line of, you know, the, like the direct line of Durin just dies out, right? And then, of course, well, you know, like it's not, it's not that far off. Dan is right there, and we can keep going. And so, you know, the line of kings will continue. But, but here's here's Dis is the, you know, the living endpoint of that uh, of that lineage, right? Just as you're saying, and you know, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's a, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And and I, I don't, I don't know if there can be a Durin the forty second at this point right right yeah um yeah uh there's uh there's real there's real loss uh that has happened uh there i mean it's again like yeah sure dan's king now and erebor is thriving and everyone most everybody has lived happily ever after but she is the reminder that like not really right there really was a cost to this and she um yeah yeah, she's an excellent reminder of that. So I thought that that was really neat. And, and her, I totally bought her antagonism towards Gandalf. Like, that really seemed to make sense. People kind of, um, you know, it's easy to joke like the hobbits do in The Lord of the Rings about meddling, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, 
you know, meddling in the affairs of wizards and stuff like that. Um, but like to Dis, it's not a joke, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. this wizard c- came in and it's, you know, he, 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 he did all this. He arranged all right. this. Um, right. And she still holds him responsible for it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so Gandalf is, you know, he's got his eye on the big picture, but he, and unlike most of the other people in the circles in which he travels, he does care about the people on the ground. Sure. But, um, you know, Bilbo very easily could have gotten killed on that trip. Like if, if certain, certain powers that be weren't keeping a very close eye on Bilbo, <laughs> it's pretty likely that he doesn't make it out of the, you know, the first couple of scrapes that they wind up in. Yes. Yes. Yep. Down, and down. and some of the hobbits who went into venturing with Gandalf were never seen again. And, you know, whoops. <laughs> so, yeah, it, we wanted to kind of show that Gandalf is a good guy, but there's a cost to his plans and not everyone agrees with what he did. That's right. All. Right. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's great. I think that that's um, I think that's really important. Um, yeah. Tony says he's perilous. Gandalf is. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it's it's no joke going off into the blue with Gandalf the Grey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, the frame got really heavy in episode four because, like a moron, I suggested a format for this episode which shouldn't really work, if I'm honest. Like, I, you know, it was one of those moments where like I, I was like, "Hey, this is a cool idea," and then af- as soon as I typed it out and sent it to you guys, I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a terrible idea. That's the worst <laughs> idea I've ever had because it's going to wreak havoc with the with the structure of the episode <clears throat> because you can't have the same characters all the way through." Um, so the solution was to basically turn it into a clip show, right? Instead of having the so the main so now clips show also requires a framing device right you you know in this happens a lot in sitcoms when the characters are talking about something that's affecting them now but we're showing clips from past episodes right to right. to um to strengthen what the the drama of what they're talking about and this is obviously not quite the same thing cuz we're seeing things that are as far as our main story story is concerned in the present day in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were basically framing that with the frame that we have. Right. Um, and <clears throat> using that to, and using the bits from the main story to kind of strengthen what we were talking about in the frame. Right. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was a little surprised at how we cut to the frame from the, cause we're starting off with Thorin Grethel's fly around, right? Right. At the beginning of this. Um, and then one thing that made me uncomfortable and I wasn't sure whether my discomfort was a thing that you would like approve of, in fact, um, uh, you know, if, if it was, uh, if it was a good thing or not, um, but I was a little uncomfortable with the juxtaposition of Thurin Gwethil and the ravens, right? Um, c- 
because... Well, you don't actually see Theron Grethel. No, you, you don't. You see from her point of view as she's flying through the clouds. Right, right. But you never actually see her until the very end. Right, exactly. No, yeah, so, but it's... It's kind of like how in the frame for season one, occasionally we had to equate Melkor's point of view with, say, 10-year-old Estelle. Right. <laughs> Where it's just like, that's an awkward... <laughs> <laughs> juxtaposition. juxtaposition. So same idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Ravens being good guys, Theron Gothel being a bad guy. The the reason we have it is for the visual of flight, of flight. Um, more so than any, any connection between the characters. And I guess, I mean, so Rihanna, you're right. Part of the problem, I think, is that I knew it was Theron, Theron Gothel, right? So as soon as I was getting, you know, as soon as we're getting like the helicopter shots coming across, I was like, oh, okay, right. It's throwing, throwing Grethel in flight. So when it turned like essentially through the cut kind of turned into a Raven of, uh, of Erebor, I was like, Hey, wait a second. Like that's, you know, like the Ravens union is going to be up in arms about this because like, Holy cow. Um, but of course you're right. We don't know that it's her. Right. So in fact, if anything, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, um, um, you know, a bit of misdirection on our part, right? Because right. we're trying to save the surprise for the end. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and especially you have ravens you've... appear in a lot of the other. Yeah, right. Just... So it's exactly. there'll be a raven that shows up, or you'll hear a raven, or something. So, really, what I'm trying to do is for people who are watching this for the first time and don't know that the thing causing the flyover shots is actually Theron Bethel, they'll think it's just more raven point of view in the main story, like mm-hmm. it is in the frame. But then at the end, they'll realize that it was very wet the whole time. Right. Especially since, yeah, I loved that business with uh, Anil and his messenger raven, right? So that, because um, that gives um, full ju- full justification, right, for the viewer to think that it's it's probably a messenger raven. That, like the, 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 the flying shots that we're getting are like the messengers going back and forth between, uh, you know, the lords of the Noldor and, and, and such like. Um, only to find out at the end that it was through, actually Thorin Gwethel. So I think that that does, that does work. I was uncomfortable, but again, I think my discomfort is really just because I already knew the secret. So, um, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. I, so, Here's one question I had about the frame. Um, Dan, I was reasonably sure that Dan's, um, like, apparent obsession about a second dragon attack, right? As everyone else is like, uh, really, it's not super likely that another dragon is going to be coming along imminently. Um I mean, I'm assuming that he's doing this because, like, he's this is his way of like arming himself just in case the Elven King tries anything funny, right? So, yes. Yeah. The idea is that it's politically safe to be defensive about dragons, who everyone knows are dangerous. Right. It's politically right. dangerous to arm yourself and say that it's because of your neighbor, the Elven King, who could also be arming himself. And yeah, so that's part of what's going on. The other reason for it is that um, with Glaurung being our surprise in episode 13, we needed the frame to be talking about dragons. It seemed the dwarves would be the ones who would be interested in this. And Dana's sitting on a giant treasure, which attracts dragons. So his fear of dragons visiting him isn't 
completely unfounded. Like he's not a nutcase for doing this. Right. He's just maybe going a little overboard. Yeah, and and also I think that because I was looking over episode the script for episode four today, as I kind of alluded to earlier um, before we got started. And I think that it's possible that we could kind of walk him back a little bit to, you know, like give him a little bit more subtlety there. But mm-hmm. I, and I think I don't think it would take much. I think just some subtle changes in his dialogue would kind of take him like a couple of notches south of crazy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Again, I, I I agree. I mean, and Maria, as you said, it's not like it's complete. It's you know, he's like a complete nut job for thinking about it. Um, but it did seem a little intense, a little kind of like obsession, uh, you know, a, a, a little obsessed where it became clearest, like that he was, in fact, being politically savvy rather than just a little touch crazy um, was when, at the camp. Right. When they were and they're actually waiting for the Elven yeah. King and the elves to show up. And that was what episode five, wasn't that? Um when they actually come out or was it was four or five when they actually come out and then they, they show, arrive they set up in their five. Camp. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it was five. Um so yeah, like at that point, you know, when they're like, Okay, we are in our armed and heavily defensible camp and uh, the Elven King is coming, um, that's when it was really, really clear. Like, okay, right, got it. I I totally understand now. And and the Dragon Guard thing, um uh it's all it all it all makes sense. Um, but yeah, I think that maybe a little bit earlier on, he sounds a little too earnest, maybe. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, 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 I agree, uh, Nick. I think that some, 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 some fairly subtle changes there could, uh, could kind of pull that back in a little yeah. bit. But the Dragon Guard, by the way. Yeah, I, I agree. We were talking. Oh. Go on, go on. It's fine. Sorry, Nick. Go ahead. No, no, no. Yours is probably more relevant. <laughs> probably is. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, what I was saying was we were talking last time about how uh, with a lot of these scripts you have to write exactly what you're planning and then sort of edit it to make it more subtle. Right. And right. I will say that this script for episode four was the very first one that I wrote. Okay. So literally the first screenplay I have written in my life. <laughs> so wow. if really? this one is lacking subtlety, that's because yeah, I've never, well, technically I have written a screenplay before because when I was in eighth grade, I had to make a video for Spanish class <laughs> and my friend and I did a Spanish video based on Lord of the Rings. There you go. Useful experience. There we go. So like, yeah, it, it was like five minutes and at the end, the eagles came and we were like, Los Aguelas están viniendo. Eagles are coming. <laughs> so, so technically, I've written a screenplay for that, there you but go. I have never written a screenplay like this for an episode of television before. Yeah, no. So, so, so yeah, this is why this is your first English. Any of these are Latin <laughs> First English language. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so I was just going to say that the Dragon Guard actually came out of a a uh, prestige class that I had created for my uh, my brother's character in the Lord of the Rings role-playing game from the Decipher mm-hmm. um, game back in the, the like early 2000s. Oh, okay. Because uh, he found an exploit in the plate armor rules so that his character basically couldn't get hurt. Uh, <laughs> but I could knock him down constantly, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. So I made him a deal. I said, look, I'm going to create this prestige class for you that's specifically geared 
to being resistant to to fire damage and to being knocked prone, but you have to give the exploit of the plate armor rules, and so that's that. And I called it the Dragon Guard, and that's where the Dragon Guard come from. No, I think it's I I I really like the Dragon Guard. You know the concept of the and and again how it the very name is itself a kind of um, a kind of you know blind right. Um, like oh you know you know we're, we're this is the guard to guard against the dragon obviously like it's right there in the name right yeah so um, <laughs> I, I, I like that I like that it's it's like when political movements name themselves after a completely innocuous thing and say no 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 like we're against bad stuff we <laughs> we call ourselves organization against bad stuff so right, therefore right. we are obviously the good guys right exactly exactly yeah no I um. I like that. And I thought so uh what's the other questions that I had? Oh, I loved um the meeting between Bilbo and uh uh and Kelleborn's sister. I, I loved that. Um I thought that worked just wonderfully. And I was delighted uh, and this was this was episode five. And I was right? No, yeah, because it was the Mary Yeah, Heaven. that would have been episode five, yeah. Yeah. Um I was just delighted to have this like brief return to like an actual storytelling frame. Right. You know, in which like the story of the episode is being told in the frame, um, you know, by someone who is there having this, you know, character crossover, you know, things that we did frequently back in season one and two, um, but had kind of gotten away uh, from a little bit. And and I'm fine with how that's gone, but I just, I just loved that coming back and, uh, and seeing her there and, uh, Having Bilbo be introduced to her, um, that was really um, that was really fun. I, ju- I just I, I thought that that whole thing was really successful, and the way that it ties um, explicitly, you know, makes an explicit though not as strained or awkward uh, parallel between you know the themes of the th- of the frame story and the themes of of the you know yeah. the season four story. I thought that that worked really really well. I think we're going to get a lot more of that storyteller frame style uh, in the Baron and Luthien season. Yes. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. Um, But speaking of episode five, we should probably do that. We could talk about episode five. No, I was actually, I'm like, I want to finish the frame. Is there anything I wanted to say about the episode six frame? Episode six frame is when the elves actually come, right? And they're giving gifts to each other. Uh, Yeah. Pretty sure. I think that happens episode in six, episode five is the one where they're giving gifts. Okay. Episode six is the one where oh. they are looking at the document. Yes, the translation. Yes. Gandalf yeah. is reading the moon letters. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Um. Yes. Okay. That that was to have a concrete thing that could be resolved through the course of the frame, aside from these very nebulous trade negotiations and political right. uh, good will towards one another there needed to be like an actual physical thing that could be done and that was the uh what that document is going to lead into for the next uh half the season oh and speaking of unauthorized world building apparently we figured out what the conflict is between Mirkwood, like the source of the conflict between Mirkwood and erebor was in the first place that uh-huh. the dwarves Oh built, yes, the, the built payment. some stuff for yeah they built some stuff for uh, for Orifer, and 
or for one of them to leave off part of it. And so he also left off part of the payment, which they've always been, they've been mad at him ever since, because, you know, like we, like we were perfectly willing to do this job to get it done, but you just decided that you didn't want to go through with it anymore. That's not our fault. Is it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's of course a wonderful moment where, you know, in the Hobbit, the rather vague reference to the old trouble between the elves and the dwarves is of course vaguely recycled from the Silmarillion tradition, but it's not, doesn't actually match the Silmarillion tradition, which, and of course we wouldn't want that anyway. Um, you know, since we're telling both stories, both the story of Thingol and the dwarves and the story of, uh, Erebor and Thranduil. So, um, I, I liked how that worked out. Actually. I thought that was, uh, and I liked how it was Orifer, Right. That makes sense historically. I mean, it means it's an old uh, grudge. Right. Because Orifer has been gone for a while. It also means that Thranduil may not have known what happened. Yes. Also. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's and it's, the dwarves can be Moria dwarves, not necessarily Erebor dwarves like there's it allows there's plausible de- deniability on all sides here. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and also, you know, the opportunity for like, are the dwarves being a little bit out of control and obsessive in holding this grudge for this old thing? Like, yes, but like, were the elves in the wrong? P- quite possibly. Right. So, you know, it's uh, um, it is important, you know, for something like that to be able to kind of see both sides of it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. OK, so that was good. Um the solar eclipse or the lunar eclipse. Sorry. Yes. Um, lunar eclipse. We're thinking like a, the like a like a a red moon eclipse kind of deal. Um, I think that we were. Oh gosh. So the, basically, the eclipse no. in the the main story is is the solar, solar eclipse. eclipse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But for the for the moon runes, I believe it was a lunar eclipse, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was a lunar eclipse. Yes, it was. Um, yes, red moon. So the, a red moon lunar eclipse. Okay. Of course, we we have to make sure that it would be hard to read moon letters by the light of an eclipse. Of no moon, moon whatsoever. Right? I mean, yeah, it yes. would be. That would be. I mean, of course, even if it were like you know, like a half eclipse or or you know, a, a two thirds eclipse or something. Yeah. You know, it would still be it would still have an effect. But um, but yeah, I think like the 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 sort of red moon thing is like would provide light and an altered light. Right. So that would be mm-hmm. um, apparently this is an extremely secure document. Extremely. I mean, man, was that secure? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like they better get a transcription of this now while the iron's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to get too many chances at that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Gandalf happens to know that that's the kind of moon and event that you need to read those moon letters. And it just so happens that it coincides with this event. So there's some very nice coincidences going on there. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Because, of course, that sort of coincidence never happens never in any happens. Absolutely. Especially not. A hundred years ago, last Thursday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I. Uh, that that struck me. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I was kind of feeling like I, I'm not sure how a general audience would respond. I thought it was hilarious. You know, I mean, because it was a kind of over the top. Uh, it was a very kind of gentle, um, 
you know, having fun with the, you know, the luck tradition in The Hobbit, right? Because uh, you guys even mentioned it explicitly in the, you know, Gandalf in his dialogue mentions the luck explicitly. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that. I thought it was very funny. Um, I can imagine people who, you know, aren't as well grounded in The Hobbit being like, Oh come on now, that's like way too much of a coincidence. Oh, we'll we'll win those people over. Yeah, we'll get yeah. them exactly. exactly. And the frame is supposed to be funny. Like yeah. it, it's got some serious themes in it, but it's mostly a funny point in the episodes. Yeah, and by the way, kudos on the fat joke with Bomber. You guys made a good fat joke, which I really <laughs> liked. Uh, I, I was like, I, you know, I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm in general a huge fan of Tolkien's fat jokes, but they're so consistent that I th- and and I thought this one just came off really well because like, it came off the tone with Balin delivering it uh, came off kind of like uh, a very sort of a, a hobbitry kind of tone, like kind of like how Merry and Pippin would tease each other. Right. Um, yeah, that fat joke was created by the thinnest member of this group. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, I thought it was great. I really like the I really like the fact. And the 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 uh the the, the for those of you who haven't read the scripts, which you absolutely should, of course, uh is that that you know when Bilbo when Balin is first going to take Bilbo to Erebor and he's offering to show him various things and Bilbo says what he would first like to see is the larder uh and uh and then Balin jokes that well then uh, it, it will probably be you know Bomber will be the first of of your old friends that you'll see and then he says under his breath that he's not sure that Bomber can fit through the door to leave the larder anymore um which was again was a very Tolkien flavor fat joke uh, at Bomber's expense so uh, that was uh, that was really fun. I like that. Um, okay, good. So I'm done with the frame. We talked about six uh, episodes of the frame, uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot to see there. And I'll be interested to t- to talk more as we move on. Of course, about the the growing tensions uh, and uh, and about uh, Bard's position. We haven't talked about Bard too much, and I'll be interested to see uh, kind of how he continues. He's been kind of the you know, I don't know. He's like the straight man for Dan yeah, and the Elven yeah. King there's, so a, there's a lot of only sane man going on there. <laughs> yes. He's kind of caught in the middle. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, okay. He has a very unenviable position he for does. most of the situation. Yes. Uh, because at the same time, he also, like, he's desperately trying to raise up enough money to continue getting Dale rebuilt because presumably a lot of the stuff that he's using for this building project he's getting from the dwarves he's got to come up with money to pay them right 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 absolutely absolutely okay um all right so going back to then the uh the main Silmarillion body of things um we did talk about uh Maria as you were reminding us we 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 talked about the Mithros um plot line right and Mithros's mm-hmm. recuperation and I remember we talked about even from episode four the um, tournament duel between uh, Mithros and Fingolfin um, oh by the way one quick comment on that that I wanted to make that really jumped out at me much more I guess I, I read them again and uh, one thing that jumped out at me much more the second time the business about clarifying that when they fight each other they're not like this is not a challenge for the kingship right Mithras is not 
actually challenging Fingolfin. This is just for fun, everybody. Yeah, um, it's an exhibition match. Right, exactly. The thing that I don't like about that, I can imagine, for instance, somebody like Kurafin or Karanthi or Keligor making a joke about it, right? Mm-hmm. Or even making a sort of a half-serious, like, you know, well, maybe the kingship should rest upon, you know, maybe we should wage the kingship on this or something. Yes, please, use knives. <laughs> but I don't think, in general, I don't think that the... I can't imagine Elvish kingship passing by combat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't seem to me like that would be a thing that they would even have to address. Like, nobody would think that, mm-hmm. would they? I mean, would anyone would be yeah. like, oh, they're fighting. If Mithros wins, he's totally the king now. Like, I, that seemed to me kind of alien to the way that uh, to the to the concept of Elvis kingship that we had talked about, um, so I wasn't sh- again. I, it's not that I mind it coming up, uh, especially since, particularly for the other Feanorians, there's still that tension, right? Of like, Mithro mm. should be the king. So anytime we're like in a crowd and it's Fingolfin versus Mithros, and you know the other Feanorians are there, there's going to be that edge to it, right? Of like, you know, show them who should be really king. So it's not that I minded that coming up at all, but it was it was the presumption that if you don't clarify and make sure it's really clear, everybody's going to assume that he's challenging him for the kingship by, by combat. And I don't think that that trial by combat in that way um, yeah. would would really be in people's yeah. Mind. That's that's a fair. That yeah. seems the... like more, something that's more directed at the audience. So I think that the easiest way to address that might be to just have a quick exchange before the fight starts right. between Fingolfin and Myrus, where, where they talk about giving them a good show or something like that. To like just to reiterate that it is for show to the audience without being too heavy-handed in elves telling each other things that like obviously they know. Right. Right. Um, yeah, because the, the idea was that with Fingolfin being High King, he can't exactly enter the tournament um, because, like, everyone else would have to, like, lose to him out of politeness, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that's a chivalry thing that we should have elves do or not, but regardless, him, like, sitting there as a non-participant, the exhibition match was supposed to be his opportunity to participate anyway. So we wanted to kind of set it up like that. But you're right, we weren't trying to actually... K- make the audience think that by Fingolfin going to Pimbering, he was risking his life. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. And we kind of wanted a way to explain how we had it set up, because the way we have it set up is it's not a realistic sword fight because they're going for points sort of like an Olympic fencing right, match. Right, right. So we wanted to make that something that would be slower so that the audience would be able to actually see and understand how Mithros was almost beating Fingolfin, but then Fingolfin beats him in the end. Mm-hmm. And because like a real sword fight, if they were actually doing a duel in the tournament, would be over very quickly and the audience would probably miss a lot of the moves. Right. Right. So we yeah. wanted a way to explain that. And so making it seem like this is not a challenge for kingships who are going to use bonded weapons and do this point system instead of actually hitting each other and trying to hurt each other. And just the talking about it not being a challenge was a way to address the extra safety rules of the following. Right, right, right. 
Yeah. Um, no, and I loved the, uh, the th- I mean, uh, just the whole kind of spirit of Fingolfin throughout this, right? Like the, how, just how much he loves fighting. I, 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 yeah. I like that element. <laughs> it's uh, very Tulkas, right? Yes. Like you can almost imagine Tulkas. that Fingolfin spent some time hanging out with Tulkas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or the unincluded. You know, Valar of uh, <laughs> of, of, of combat, martial yeah. combat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, oh, whose name I'm blanking on now? Begins oh, with an M. Two of them. Begins with an M. Yeah, him and Yeah, Miase. Miase is the is the female one. Wait, who, which one was the male one again? Makar. I'm thinking yeah. Makar, but I'm Makar. not even yeah. No, that's wrong. right. Makar and Miase. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I was okay. blanking on them. Um, I, I remember we we briefly flirted with the idea of including them but yes. decided not to yeah no i think Tolkien. i think that that cut was a good one um but uh but it is a little bit tempting anyway i like Tolkien's way better anyhow um uh cool so now yeah anyway so like i said i really did like that about about fingolfin um let's see what else did i want to say about episodes three and four um We talked about. I know we talked about Goadriel and Millian last time. How much did we talk about uh, uh, Goadriel and Luthien? I don't think we talked about them at all. Okay. So, what do you want to say about Let's them? Let's talk about Goadriel and Luthien. Um, I liked the friendship between Goadriel and Luthien. One of the things that is um, really that was really interesting to me about that relationship, right, is that. There is it seems like from relatively early on, Goadriel and Melian, right, are interacting Melian is like one of Goadriel's role models, right? I mean she's like learning from Melian, right? She she like wants to be Melian when she grows up. Right? Yes, Galadriel aspires to be Melian. Exactly. Which means that she is, you know, in as much as she is modeling herself after Melian, she's like above Luthien. Luthien is is the junior of the two of them. And given that Goadriel is the one coming from Valinor, right, who, you know, has all this experience in Valinor with the Valar and everything else, right, seeing the trees and Luthien has lived the compar- the comparatively sheltered life, right, just here in Doriath and... um and she's younger, sort of. But I think she should look younger anyway. And she's shorter, too. Right? Galadriel's significantly tall. So I think she should have, like, a, a fair number of inches on Luthien. Um, which, again, is a good thing. Like, I, 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 I think that when the two of them, Luthien and Galadriel, are together, Galadriel should look like the senior one of the, of the, of, of the group. Right. That like if one of them is going to be the older sister and the other, the little sister, externally, at least, it should look like Galadriel is the older and Luthien is the younger. Um, Except, of course, the way that you guys do the story is you have Luthien like tutoring her, right, teaching her to dance and everything else um, so that, in fact, we don't see that dynamic borne out. Right. We see Galadriel instead kind sort of humbling herself. Right, humbling herself mm. to learn things that she doesn't know, yeah. to become a student. She's not trying to teach, right? She's not trying to assert authority. She's not trying to build her reputation. 
uh, she she really has a, a fairly humble approach to life uh, in uh, in Doriath, and I found that really interesting. You guys want to talk a little bit about that? And, 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 and yeah. am I right there? I mean, is that what you guys were well, going she's, for? She's kind of learning how to be a Disney princess, right? Um, right. So, <laughs> whereas right. Luthien already has that down, right? You know, right. She, yeah. She like is, she's she is it. like the archetype after which the Disney princesses are all modeled, right? Right. It, yeah. Except for the needing to ever be saved ever um, right. exactly it's the one thing that the disney princesses always do wrong yeah yeah well i mean yeah. not, not always there's some who you know not, anyway less but so in, recently in, but yeah yes yeah but let's just say that luthien is really good at the dancing in the woods with her woodland friends yeah aspect uh -huh. exactly. of yes. princessship exactly. yep yeah yep. the the day that a disney princess sings down a fortress <laughs> i'm i'm in that's right that's right I mean, we we've seen one sung up, but you know. Yeah, um, anyway, same. so yeah, what we needed was for we're, we're leading up to the Marathatathat here, right? We're leading up to the point at which Galadriel is going to con to give her confession to yes. Celeborn, and Celeborn is not going to tell anybody, right? So he has to see in her reasons not to do that. And we felt that we really needed to give more lead up to that than we were going to be able to get yep. in the single episode of the Marathon of that. Yes. In yes. addition, Kelborn knows all this really suspicious stuff that's been going on up in Mithrim. Like, yeah. it's weird, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they're separated mm -hmm. into two camps. There's clearly that they these guys don't like those guys. They don't won't really talk about it. They're being kind of dodgy on a couple of questions that we've asked them. It looks a little strange. But so we needed Galadriel to kind of, um, what's the word? Um, to to bring Gain back trust, <clears throat> right, yeah. right. But without her attempting to do it, without her doing it on purpose, right, right. Yeah, I mean the fact that he, you know, she's not even aware of him for part of it, right? He just sort of yeah. he sees her, kind of integrating, right, right. Uh, hanging out with Luthien and stuff before she's even aware that he's back and you gotta imagine that the noldor do kind of treat the sindar a little bit like yokels mm -hmm. right absolutely like yeah sure they're visiting dignitaries and everything but you know that like people who can't speak sindar are like trying to talk to them in quenya really loud and slowly every <laughs> once in a while <laughs> right right yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's that, that's one of the things that I was talking about with like the apparent difference between Goadriel and Luthien, right? That Goadriel is like mm -hmm. the sophisticated one, right? Right. Um, yeah. And you know, and and Luthien, yeah. I mean, she's you know, you know, but yeah, she's like the the I you know dance with my woodland friends, you know, in the forest, um, and I've never been outside of this forest in my life, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And not to do another, you know, D and D reference, but the, you know, obviously both of these women like have their charisma stats through the roof. But while <laughs> I'd, I'd say, <laughs> right, but while Galadriel's secondary is intelligence, Luthien's is wisdom. Right, right, right. Sure, I can buy that. I Which obviously that. opens up an entirely different set of skills for her yeah. to use as trained skills. You know, right, exactly. Luthien has no dump stat, but I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, 
I, uh, I, I, so yeah, I, I was interested in that. I was also interested that you have Luthien as teacher so much of the time, not just to go Adriel, but like in general, mm-hmm. like she's, yeah. she's like teaching classes all the time. Well, I mean, why, obviously, like if she's the best at things, obviously, you know, she's teaching those things that makes. Yeah, so this is part of Elvis culture that probably will have more. She's willing to share her knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably get more into in season five, showing how knowledge is passed on among the elves versus men and dwarves, because obviously with elves, you don't have the generational issue of people dying out. So (laughs) you end up with your masters being the people who have done this forever and become experts in it. And that would be a Luthien role in Doria. It would be right. just she's the premier example of everything because she's Luthien. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but with with Galadriel, we needed to show that her experience with Melian had left a lasting impact on her. Yeah. And to show what that was. Like, obviously she's upset. Obviously she's dealing with some stuff. But the humility is new. Yeah. That's never something we've seen in Galadriel before. And it's something that's going to, you know, wear off because it's Galadriel. <laughs> she's she's not going to stay like this forever. She's right. like, she's kind of on extra good behavior right now, if you want to view it that way. But it is a sincere attempt on her part. She's she's trying. She yes. wants to sincerely know about the Sindar. Yes. Well, no, when... Yeah, I, 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 I really did... <laughs> I really did like that. That was to me an unexpected direction of Goadriel's mm. character, um, uh, and I, and I really liked it. Yeah. Also, she she probably did not expect to meet another Ainu outside of Valinor. Also, mm-hmm. so like her encounter with Fairy kind of rocked her a little bit. Right. You know, like right. this isn't something that she expected either. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, thinking, right, that uh, when they, the Noldor, got back to Middle-earth, they are going to be the highest authorities, right, that they're going to be. I mean, you know, so, like, on the one hand, we're not going to have any help from Valinor. On the other hand, we're going to be in charge, right? We're, we'll be Valinor. Yeah, exactly. We are going to be Valinor to all those other, to, you know, to all to everybody else who's over there, um, you know, both to the bad guys and to the good guys in different ways, right? Um, but yes, for her to find somebody like Melian, who is in that way a kind of a, not just a reminder, but like a, a an encounter with um, with Dalinor, I, I, I agree. I think that's really interesting. As Sam would say, it's an eye opener and no mistake. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, good. What else happens in episode three? What am I forgetting about? Um, it's one thing when I, 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 as before, I sort of read them all together and so i'm sometimes blending in my memory it has the confrontation between Corinthian and angrod angrod goes to doriath and he comes back and he delivers single's message yeah so it's mm-hmm. also about uh, the nolder's general relationship with doriath and where they can establish their realms okay right um so question about that um <laughs> when thingle asks Caliborn. How did they receive my message? And you know, and and Caliborn tells him, uh, "Is Melian actually rolling her eyes in the background? Like Thingol being surprised that uh, I don't know." Um, I liked how Caliborn 
how you guys handled Caliborn, right? How he effectively gives the, you know, when he, when he turns back around to Thingol and says, and how would you enforce that will? Right. Um, you know, when he, when, when Thingol does his like, but I was being generous, I could have told them this or that. And he's like, <laughs> and how could you have enforced that? Um, I thought he did, a, you know, that was a really good job of Celeborn sort of showing he understands how the Noldor are thinking. And there's even like a little bit of an edge of like, Thingol, don't you think this is at least the slightest bit unreasonable? Um, you know, mm. you, it's easy to say that, right? But seriously, um, uh, what's like, oh. you know, Melian's yeah, we do, thoughts we about don't... it? We don't often see Thingol's people disagree with him. Mm -hmm. yeah. In general, Beleg, Mablon, Caliborn are just going to be like, yes, Thingol, whatever you say sounds right. good. You're the king. Right. Melian doesn't feel that way about Thingol. Right. Right. Clearly. Um, right. But she kind of lets him rule the kingdom the way he sees fit, and she's not concerned, except for when she wants to give him a heads up that he could maybe be doing better. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, Caliborn just came from the Noldor. Like, he's got to know. He's got to, like, he has eyes. He knows that if it came down to a military conflict, that the Noldor would roll them. Like, he's right. got to know that. He's got to know that. And, yeah. He, you know, so he he certainly has that in mind when he's talking to Thingol, and he's trying to encourage Thingol to be a little bit more circumspect because. You know, like, it's fine to kind of, like, say that you're the one in charge. Yep. It's another to, like, have to enforce that on somebody who's willing to unwilling to acknowledge it. Right. And thus far, the Noldor have kind of allowed Thingol to remain, to call himself in charge. Right. And right. They, haven't, they haven't pushed the issue. Yes. Yes. Um, and and Caliborn's discouraging him from pushing with... him to push the issue. Yeah. Go ahead, Brianna. Another thing with Caliborn and Melian is what I did was I had him after he comes from the camp of the Noldor and comes back to Doriath after he's just seen Carinthir insultingly call everybody Dark Elves. Right. He comes back and he has a conversation with Melian where he talks about uh, I was kind of unhappy there. They were kind of mean. The Sons of Feyenoord were really jerks. Right. And Melian tells him, go seek out Galadriel. And then he goes and he encounters Galadriel and he sees her, one of the Noldor, humbling herself by taking lessons from Luthien. And she even has that moment where they're sitting by the fountain. And he sort of asks a question. He's like, well, surely seeing the light of the two trees made the Noldor better dancers than the Sindar. <laughs> and Gladiator's like, no, no, we just had a different style. Yes. I'm not better yes. than anyone else. And so he sort of sees in Gladiator this capability for them to recognize the Sindar as not lower than them, but equal in a different way. And that's sort of what changes his mind. So in between talking to Melian and talking to Thingol, he changes how he wants to inform the royalty of Doria about yeah. the Noldor and their reaction to Thingol's message about where they could live. So, mm -hmm. so that's why he is like very, very in favor of keeping good relationships with the Noldor mm -hmm. when he finally does talk to Thingol. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did really, um, I did really like that scene. Um, you could tell that he was kind of testing her 
right? Which, of course, by the way, I loved, right? Like, you meet Galadriel, and you, like, test her to find out what is really in her heart, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's kind of nice, actually, right? <laughs> Given that it's Galadriel. Um, um, you know, we're probably going to Galadriel, Galadriel a number of times over <laughs> the course of the series. Yes. Yeah, no, that was good. That was good. I, I, I did I did like that. Um, so, question I had... Angrod and is it Caranthir that he's fighting with or Kelgorm? Kelgorm. Caranthir. Oh, it's Caranthir? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean, I know they, they're the ones who have the argument at the council. I mean the actual fist fight later on. Was that Caranthir again? Yes. Okay. It is Caranthir again. All right. Um so I wasn't sold on that scene. I think first and foremost from a cultural standpoint, again. Like it felt very familiar, it felt too familiar, right? Like the like two guys start having a fist fight and like everybody just kind of gathers around in a circle and watches. Uh, you know, kind of cheering until somebody in authority comes to break it up. That felt really familiar. Like, you know, I've seen that kind of thing. You know, I, I went to middle school. But um, but <laughs> it. I was like, mm, would that happen? Or would that happen that way? Like if, if so I was I was just I wasn't 100 percent sold that that's how elves would behave. Exactly. Yeah, um, initially. Sorry, go on. No, go no, 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 no. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Initially, we kind of envisioned it as like they they didn't actually make contact. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe um, in in writing the script, Brianna felt that more tension needed to be added. But I I do know that initially, it was more of a like le- a character like leapt towards him and. You know, Mithros and Magalor kind of yank him back while Agnor, Agnor gets in front of Angrod. Right, right. Because yeah, the, um, there's always the issue that, you, well, you can get in someone's face and shout at them when everyone is heavily armed. You can't really let things go too far without someone being injured. And yes. that's a difference between the middle school altercations you witnessed and. Yes. Under- armed encampment of elves. Yes. So that that is that is something that we, we're trying to be aware of. But again, how do you explain that people are really, really mad at each other and walking past each other and not pulling their weapons? Like why not? What you know uh so yeah, it's it's a it's a tension there that we have to hit the right notes on. Yeah. I wonder if um I mean okay, yeah so t- I did so, add- Yeah, no, sorry, go go ahead, go ahead. So I, I did add the fist fight that wasn't in the outline, and I did add it because I felt there needed to be more tension added. I, I wanted to show one them being immature. So if it looks like middle school, it's supposed to look, it's like, supposed middle to look like middle school. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to show Finn able to <laughs> able to assert his leadership and come in and like actually stop a fight mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. before he has sort of let Mythos handle his brothers but I wanted to show Fingolfin having to step in and actually do something about this since Mythos didn't happen to be there at the time right right um yeah 
I guess the fist fight itself isn't the part that I had a hard time believing. The part that I had a hard time believing was the act that like everybody else. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it was one of those difficult things where I was like, on the one hand, I, this doesn't feel exactly right, but I wasn't sure like what else to suggest exactly. I wasn't sure what else to do. I mean, I like the idea of the increased tension, right? To show that this is not just water under the bridge after that meeting, right? Um, that there is still very actively bad blood between, you know, Angrod and Karanthir as uh, a, you know, sort of glimpse of the ongoing tensions there between the Feanorians and the others. So I didn't dislike the idea. I didn't dislike the idea of a fight. But um, The problem with who the spectators are, because I know I had, uh, like, Helgrim and Kurofin are watching Karanthir fight, and they're not yes. going to step in because this is Karanthir's fight. Yeah. But then I also had Ethlos and I think Ordreth watching Angrod fight. Yes. So that might have seemed odd because they're his family and his wife and his son who are generally more in favor of getting along and reconciliation. Yeah. So maybe having them there the, and I... not trying to stop the fight before Fingolfin got there is what made it seem odd. Like, had it just been Karanthir fighting Angrod and the other spectators were the Fanorians and maybe Agnor, maybe it wouldn't have seemed so odd. Yes, I agree. that It, it, it was definitely the spectators that were making me more uncomfortable. Um, and Ethelos, I agree. I mean, like, if anyone is going... I mean, Fingolfin, of course, has the authority to come in and say, hey, everybody, knock it off. But if Ethelos isn't going to say like, dude, what are you thinking? You moron. Back off. Um, who is? Like, if his wife isn't going to say that to him, who is going to say it to him? And especially given the relationship between them that we see and her role as his herald, right? I mean, it's not only, I mean, as wife, as herald, like, she's got all kinds of reasons to say, Angrod, you're being a git. Like, don't fight the Feanorians. Um, so, yes, her not intervening at all um, does seem a little bit strange. Um, it's easier to imagine Ignor not intervening than it is to imagine Edelos not intervening. Um, but so I'm trying to think of. A, I'm trying to imagine a. I mean, one of the downsides is any time I. I'm, so I'm trying to imagine an alternative scene. Like how could this same like a, a fight break out? We show the con, the continued tension between them. Um, just sort of set up differently and transpiring a little bit differently. But every time I do, I sort of feel like it, it requires longer build-up. Wait, sorry, one more time? Well, I was going to say, if there's going to be a fight, it kind of does need to have spectators. Like, having them go off and fight somewhere in the woods wouldn't really make sense. It wouldn't be building the kind of tension we want. Right. Now, there could be something that happens other than a fight. I'm just not sure what that would be. So well, I would welcome any suggestions. I think the way that the tension, like, because this is kind of a, a minor bit of tension that's going on here in this particular plot line. So the confrontation that takes place at Angrod's, um, 
at Angrod's uh, debriefing at the beginning of Act right. Two, right? Like that's the reason why you know Mythros, why Mythros and Fingolfin have to have a conversation about it. The very fact that Caranthir lunged at Angrod and Fingolfin's got to have the the idea, you know, the memory of Fingolfin. Of uh, Feanort having him at sword point, yes, in his head when that happens, right? That's enough for him to see this armed guy <clears throat> going after his nephew like that. Even if it doesn't, like, even if nobody gets hit, it they would have if there hadn't been anybody. If there hadn't been anybody to stop it, so whether it breaks out into an actual fist fight or not is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Well, I would like to clarify one thing is that the fist fight is a separate scene from right. the confrontation at yes, Angrod's yes, debriefing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Is I, I, mean, I don't the fist think... fight is like probably weeks later because it's after Celeborn has left. So I wanted to show that there was still disagreements between the Fanorians and the other elves in the camp. Right. So, yeah, no, I, I'm aware of that. That's happening in – you have that happening in Act 3. Um, yeah, yeah. I yeah. would – I would basically just use the the force of the scene from Act Two as an explanation for why Fingolfin feels like he needs to step in and talk to Mithras rather than adding in um, an additional fight after the fact. Because the, whether they actually come to blows or not doesn't really matter because the the threat of that happening of somebody getting actually hurt or killed is still there. Right. Um... I, you you referred to it, Nick, just now, and Tony and I were just thinking the same thing. Um, I let's let's allude, at least in the action. We don't have to do it verbally necessarily, um, but let's allude back to that, you know, to that uh, to the sword drawing by Feanor against Fingolfin. Right? I'd kind of like to reverse it though, because here's another thing. It was clear um, that Kelgorm and Kurafin are, like, actively complicit. They're, like, actively egging Carinthia on on this. But what was less clear was what's their end game exactly? Like, what's the point um, of their trying to, like, they're just, like, looking, you know, hoping Carinthia does, in fact, punch Angrod in the face on principle? But what I was thinking is, what if what we see is not a fist fight, but the two of them meeting, you know, like, they just, they encounter each other, like, on the street, essentially, and... Carinthia insults Angrod, like eggs Angrod on again. Basically, he's trying to induce Angrod to draw his sword on him. Like, that's their endgame. Kel- Kurafin has put Carinthia up to this, right? Because if Angrod draws his sword on... It doesn't even have to attack him, right? If he draws his sword on him, then they have, like, a reversal of the, of the, the Feanor, and, and it gives them a significant, like, piece of political leverage now, right? To be like, oh, look, we're it, it the victims. It makes Angrod the bad guy. It makes Angrod the bad guy, exactly. And, like, don't we have to exile him now, right? Like, Dad got exiled? Um, so, uh, so what if, what if we're seeing him goading Angrod, and Angrod is furious, right? And Angrod can go for his sword, and Ethelos can, like, try to stop him from drawing his sword. And Fingolfin can come in right then. Right. As Angrod is about to draw his sword and Fingolfin, of course, you know, Nick, as you said, remembering full well that other situation would be like, yeah, let's not do this. Right. He would immediately see 
how important this is becoming, right? How, how this, this is not just a, oh, there are some, Ill, there are some bad feelings, right? Um, this is something that is on the verge of becoming a seriously big deal. And uh, Rihanna, and it seemed like that was one of the, the purpose, again, to increase the tension, right? To show, again, this is not just a, we can all agree to disagree kind of situation. This is, there, there's some real volatility to the situation. And being able to lean back on that earlier scene of, of Fanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin seems to be, I think, the, 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 the logical kind of lever for us to use there. Yeah, I, I like that. The one thing I want to keep in the scene, though, is I want Fingolfin to clearly see that the conflict is the Feanorian's fault, which right. is why he goes to Mythos. He doesn't yes. go to Finrod and say, Finrod, you need to control Engrod. He goes to Mythos and says, Mythos, you need to control Karin there. Right. So he should, if it's going to be that scene of them trying to provoke Engrod, Fingolfin needs to see through that and see that they're trying yeah. to provoke Angrod. Yeah, and absolutely. He should be less mad at Angrod than he is at the Feanorians. Right. Though, well, if, if the Feanorians have encountered Angrod in a p- place where Angrod is supposed to be and they're not supposed to be, right. then it's kind of obvious who was stepping on whose toes here. Right. So even if Fingolfin doesn't hear all the lead up to the fight, he would right. be able to surmise, what are you three guys doing right outside Angrod's tent, essentially? <laughs> right. Uh, right. Exactly. I'm and yeah, so I think we can give Fingolfin that insight, even if he witnesses very little of the altercation. And the altercation itself can be pretty one-sided, right? I mean, that is like, it can be Karanthir. Karanthir can do all the talking. And Angrod can be like, I'm going to, I'm I'm rising above this, I'm rising above this, until he's not, right? And then he's going to get angry. So, I, yeah, I, I definitely think we can make it easy for Fingolfin, for everybody, really to see this was an act of aggression on the part of Karanthir. Um And yet Angrod almost fell for it, right? Angrod almost fell into the trap. Uh, and, you know, so clearly Fingolfin would also want to have a talking to him, right, about controlling his temper. And like, you know, don't you see that like you almost gave Karanthir exactly what he wanted and all that kind of thing. Sharon, yeah, it does sound a little bit like the Capulets and the Montagues in scene one of, of Romeo and Juliet, right? The guys on the street. Um, no one's going to bite their thumb at anybody else, though. We, we, we won't go quite that far, but... Um, They'll just bite their thumb in their general direction. <laughs> exactly. I, exactly. I mean, I also have some kind of concerns about the, the scene economy here. Um, Act 3 is already... It, you know, in the the original outlines, it's one, two, three, four, five scenes long, which is which is pretty long. Um, yep. um, so I I would just need to like this is one of the ones I haven't gone over in too much detail, right? Um, for stuff like that, but. Um, yeah. No, anyway, I mean, it, yeah. It, it, that would definitely be an issue. It would definitely be an issue. And I would think, you know, if there were a way that we could find to kind of come in in Medius race there, like Karanthir is already insulting him, right? And it's only like the last couple provocations that we see. So we come in on like a fuming but silent Angrod and an insulting and aggressive Karanthir, and we just get the last couple um, insults, which finally drives him almost to, to draw his sword. Um would probably be enough, I think, to establish the situation, and wouldn't add too much to uh, to what's already to what's already there. Okay. Oh, um, yeah, and I can use some of the insults that they already have in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, that's it's still it's it's very similar in its way. It just gives it a different uh, and the whole 
sword drawing parallel I really like. I think that that's that's uh that's very nice. Especially if it's kind of reversed, right? It would be it would be somebody on the Fingolfin side who would be drawing a sword on the Feanorian. Um which again And we do bit... have swords in the title, so you know, we got yeah, we got to exactly. make them play a part in the episode. That, that does that does work a lot better. <laughs> exactly. Um cool. Okay. Um uh back to episode four then um i i thought that i mean i don't know maybe it's just because i like am already going to be predisposed to like this stuff you know but i thought the stuff with the maps and the building and stuff all worked really well i i really and and the way that especially with the um with the we don't know it's thurin guethel yet flyovers connecting you know the one to the other to give people not only a view on the map, right? But to kind of make the map real uh, and sort of see some of the, the relative positions and get a glimpse of the distances between, uh, you know, some of these places and the terrain that lies in between. I thought that was really cool uh, and uh, all seemed to me uh, to work really well. Were there any any of the, like, map slash construction montage uh, 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 moments in this uh, in this episode that you guys were kind of wondering about or um, or that you were sort of especially pleased with? I liked that we had the opportunity for Finrod to be showing off his plans for Minas Tirith mm-hmm. and then for our mysterious uh, viewpoint to see those plans, Yes, which suggests that Sauron has inside information on Tulsarian yes. before he attacks it. Yes. Which will not pay off until the very end of season five, but you know, well, we have set that actually, point. I mean, actually, it, yeah. it kind of pays off in episode nine because that's now the yeah. uh, center for the. Uh... It does, but for he's not going to fully take the fortress until. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The five. full payoff. That'll well, just that's because he's not actually so. there. Right. Right. That's what I mean. Like, it's. Right. it's it's it, it's it's hinting though that there was that the spying is practical from the villain's point of view, so not just yep yeah no because sometimes you're really like good. we're spying and like okay what are you spying like what are you learning and you're spying because what what Thurin does is she's like sits outside Himmering and watches Mythos train for weeks <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah well, that... because that's the real concerning thing you know is. Watching this guy just exactly. bounce back from, you know, from Morgoth's torture. Like, if this guy can come back this hard, we we seriously need to think about our our methods here, and which of course leads into the catch and release program. Right, right. Yeah, there is there well, is well, some, there is some kind of sense of like a. About, like... Yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I did try to put some some stuff in there. Like she's trying to get information. Right in addition to the training montage, like when she's trying to look at the documents that Kynthir is showing to Mythos, or like when she's watching them when they're going around uh, like the surrounding area and looking at the fortresses and things. Like it, so there's like, you could argue that there's some justification for her just sitting and watching Mythos train, but we also had to have the training montage in this episode. Right, right, yeah, yeah. No, the training montage was, it has to happen sooner or later. And, uh, the, the, you know, I... It's almost like um, if you think about Thorin Grethel staying and watching the whole thing, it's 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 a little comical. But it's, oh yeah, but, that was my main complaint with this whole thing is that most of our little spying montages were short term, so it made sense. 
and well, I personally would have no problem sitting there watching my Sorry, train I was for weeks. Point that out. <laughs> um, I was having trouble figuring out why Theron Gwethel would be interested in that. Maybe yeah, Theron Gwethel shares your interest. <laughs> exactly. It's you know it's, she it's, seems it's, to have zero interest in that sort of thing. It's, it's just uh, it's just like a, this kind of like uh, uh, sort of fascination, right? You know. It's, it's, well, I yeah. think that the important thing to remember is that we're not actually showing months continuously on screen that we're showing, you know, moments over a period of however long it is. And I'm sure that Theron Wethel, like, takes breaks to go to the bathroom. <laughs> not constant surveillance of every Right, Milo's like, goes and move. checks out other stuff <laughs> yeah. in between. I'm sure that Myros isn't out there training for months just on end. Um, so I'm I'm not that concerned about that. Like we're gonna show that time has passed, that she that we're viewing it from different angles, that you know, that like it's not a continuous period of just Myros learning how to beat up his dudes. One one small thing that I could think about also adding, um to justify it somewhat is that of course the culmination of the time that she spends watching Mithros is uh, uh, is of course the the tournament right you know Fingolfin's visit in the tournament um, if we could kind of drop the fact that like uh, that he know like he's expecting Fingolfin to come right Thuringuethel would be thinking like well you know I'd be waiting here for a little while but this might be worth waiting for right to uh Make sure, because I, I, I want to make sure that I hear what, you know, Mytheros and Fingolfin say to each other. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it just, it's, it's, it, I, I, I don't think that it will totally avoid being a little bit comical. But, um, uh, but anyway, I, I, I agree, well, Nick. It, 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 it didn't bother Fingolfin's me. Fingolfin's arrival but... was kind of a surprise for Mythos. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was just one suggestion I was thinking about to like give her a reason to stay if we're worried about that. But if we're not, it's fine. I wasn't too worried about it. You know what we could do is at the end when she's talking to Myron, she could say something about, yeah, and I checked in with the escaped prisoner and he's actually, he looks like he's doing fine, unfortunately. Right. Or just like something she could specifically mention Mythos yep. so that like maybe Myron told her, and watch this guy extra closely because I want to see what happened after he escaped. Yeah, so, like, right. she might have been assigned to watch him more closely than everyone else. Yeah, no, I, actually, I like that. I mean, you got to think, especially um, wondering what Mythros would be like and what kind of leverage they might be able to get either over Mythros or through Mythros might be in in Myron's mind, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if his spirit was broken while he was hanging on the cliffside, which like it totally should have been, then maybe we can make some use of this. So, you know, keep a special eye on him and see what's up with him. Um, and that, of course, you know, it, it could then obviously be used to sort of anticipate, um, you know, his catch and release program right. plan. Which is going to come out in episode six. Right. Which is right two episodes from now exactly so yeah it's it's laying the foundation for that um so yeah actually rihanna your idea is much better i, I like that a lot um that because they would be at the very least curious right if not actually hoping to be able to make some use of it because if he 
you know, he could still be, you know, weak. He could be he could be despairing. He could be vulnerable, right, to further influence potentially. Um, and then so she's going to come back with bad news about Mithros himself, right? Um, and yet, it doesn't mean the idea is a terrible idea. Um, exactly, Aslan's Compass says the pilot of the Catch and Release pro- project is an absolute failure. Exactly, yeah, it is. But uh, but still, it's a sound concept, right? We just need to we just need to approach it a little bit differently. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. So let's see. Um, other elements from uh, episode four that we would want to do that we that you guys would want to talk about i'm uh i'm trying to remember oh the meeting with um anile is here in episode four as well on the plains um the kind of um you know those happy-go-lucky sindar with their determination to have fun on the plain of ardgalan um uh, right under the shadow of uh, uh, Thangarodrim. Um, certainly showing Anil and his family as this, like, you know, happy and innocent group, um, you know, before he's going to be captured and traumatized, uh, was, I mean, I I liked what I felt like, was, you know, we were setting up there, you know, his his sort of before image there. Um, not to mention, of course, just getting him up into the Northland as well, uh, so that we can, um, you know, we understand about him setting himself up up there in Hithlam, uh, later on in his hermit phase. Um, we mostly gave him a family so he could lose his family. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And like his innocence and uh, yeah, no, all kinds of things. That was, that was nice. I, I like that. It was, um... Let's talk a little bit about the Noldor attitude towards that, though. Fingen, in particular, was, like, really disturbed, right? Um, and he kept getting frustrated, like, trying to convince them to leave, and they wouldn't leave. And um, the problem is that they were insufficiently vigilant. Like, he didn't he didn't like the fact that they were taking risks, that they were taking... They were apparently taking, you know, Morgoth lightly, Morgoth and his armies lightly. Um, I'm trying, I'm just trying to parse the, you know, Arathel was in support and she was kind of being snarky to Fingen during the conversation, right? Like, you know, like, what were you afraid of? They were having too much fun, right? Um, but Fingen just kind of, he came off a little bit like somebody who just like doesn't like to see anybody else enjoying themselves. Like here I am trying to be serious and like patrol and, you know, do like grown up things. And you guys are out here picnicking and, and, you know, that's just not like a responsible way to behave. Um, yeah, but he's right though. <laughs> well, yes. Like the <laughs> fact that he's right, I think will go a long way. And I think that, I think that most people watching that scene will, will come away with this idea of, yeah, like he's right. Like he, like he's not wrong here. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's gonna read that he's just a a fuddy duddy. Well, that's what I was. That's what I was afraid of. I mean, 
in a sense, because... But keep in mind that our final episode is going to be Fingen confronting a dragon on, on our gallon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. So exactly. regardless of how it feels now, we're going to justify him by the end of the season. Right, right. Yes. Um, yes, Mr. Constant Vigilance is going to... Is Even going before to... then, when Anil gets captured, because yes. he's like picnicking. Right. Right, exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I agree. In the long term. But his dialogue could definitely be made a little bit nicer, too. Yeah. It, it, are you feeling that this doesn't sound like Fingen the Valiant? Is that the issue? That he's no. not being himself enough? or It just, I, he kind of came off like Fingen the Stodgy is kind of how he came off uh, in the in the conversation. <laughs> Um, maybe a little bit more empathy to the, you know, just the, uh, yeah, like, like something more like, clear well, that he's yeah, not sure, just that makes sense, but maybe do that on the other side of these mountains. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or just trying to convince them because he, Anil's argument, right. That like, um, we'll be able to see him coming from a good ways off. So even if Morgoth does unexpectedly attack us while we're here picnicking, we'll, we have a pretty good head start, right? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, like, yes, he sounds naive when he says that. But on the other hand, like, it's not a horrible point, right? You know, like, it's like, seriously, we have to move to the other side of the mountain range. Like, we can't come to this side of the mountain range at all. Um, you know, even though we're like, you know, miles and miles away from the gates. Uh, I mean, I understand why we wouldn't, why we shouldn't picnic like right in the gates of Angban, but you know, surely we must be safe from here. Um, uh, like again, it it didn't seem like a like a horrible argument, especially since we've never had. I mean, Aslan's compass was just asking if Morgoth has stealth troops at this point. Um, sure, he's got stealth troops, but we've not we've not seen them do anything since you know, the battle, right? You know, since they, since uh, Fingolfin arrived. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just pausing to make sure this is true, but I think it is, right? Fingen, apart, I mean, apart from his adventure on the slopes of Thangorodrim, hasn't seen any combat since they arrived in Middle-earth, right? None of them have. I mean, the Feanorians did, but apart from the Feanorians, none of the Noldor have... There was, there was a skirmish before Fingolfin's group made it to the gates of Angband. Okay. So Fingen was in that group. Okay. So he may have fought some of Morgoth's troops, but they would have been like a small company and right. possibly already defeated and fleeing from the Feanorians. It was not exactly like watch the flank or something. Yeah. Right. Like they weren't a full army. So yeah. Fingen has not been involved in a full scale battle at this point. But he has seen some fighting in Middle Earth. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember whether they'd even, even been in, even drawn swords at all. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I'm fine. All right. I'm fine with uh, with uh, with Fingen. Maybe. I guess I was what maybe want Fingen to be a little bit warmer. You know, like more cautioning you and less like I don't like to see anybody enjoying themselves. Um, uh, you know, while I'm like trying to patrol here, like you guys aren't taking me seriously and I'm, <laughs> you know, anyway, it just, it came off a little bit like that. Um, but, um, but I certainly I, agree. We're going to pay this off much more. Yeah. That might, that might be, it, it might be really, that might be all I'm, all I'm sort of wanting or needing there. 
Um, okay. Uh, good. Let's see. Any other issues from uh, episode four? No, nothing that I okay. can think of. Good. Well, let's talk about episode five then. Um, so episode five is the Marathoner thought. Um, and there was a lot that I really liked about the Marathoner thought. Um, I thought that the overall depiction of like the Elvish partying, the very general sense that we got that the Marathoner thought was going to go on for a long time, like days or weeks or months. Um, mm -hmm without like having to state that in uh in explicit exposition i thought that all came across really well um the um i th i really liked the way that you guys handled the galadriel and Celeborn interactions i thought that was really um i thought that was very very well handled um, the way that she, you know, rather than just the two of them talking and her f like flipping a switch and being like, OK, so I'm going to tell you everything now. Right. Um, the way that that kind of comes out through her own memories, through her own traumas. And she sort of step by step opens up and and tells him all the things. Um, I. I really liked that a lot, you know, and, and the way it was divided over the two days and everything. Um, uh, yeah, I was a big fan uh, of that. Were you guys happy with how that came out? Were you kind of uncertain about it? What were your thoughts? Um, when I was writing I, it, I know that I was probably most uncertain about writing the, like, building romantic relationship between mm -hmm. Celeborn and Galadriel. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that that came off well. I liked it. I really liked the progression of it. Um, yeah, because originally, uh, way back when we did the pre-planning for the season, there had been uh, talk of having her reveal the death of her mother here, right. but not the kinslaying until later. Um, when we reworked it, when we did the final outline, uh, it was required that we would deal with the kinslaying in this episode yeah. yeah so we knew we needed to get galadriel and Celeborn to a point where they could have that conversation by now so um my only worry was that we were selling that they had a camaraderie and companionship and understanding of one another that would justify this level of intimacy at this point and i felt like the other episodes were building towards it so i yes. wasn't by the time we got here, I wasn't as worried about it as I had initially mm -hmm. been concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that did um, that did make a lot of sense. Um, uh, I agree. We, I mean, we don't see more more is more is implied than is stated about their interactions in Doriath, right? But the the couple times that we do see them interacting with each other in Doriath. Um, in episodes three and four, well, three primarily, right, um, uh, seemed to me to kind of establish that the idea that, you know, they are interacting on a regular basis, right, that this is just the sort of the beginnings of, of a friendship that is going to be continuing. So I was really ready to believe it. Um, and the one way that you guys signaled that progress that was interesting um, 
like the progression of the, the fact that their relationship has progressed, right? Is um, the way in which you had Celeborn approach Galadriel after he saw her interaction with her family from he from a distance saw her interaction with her family, right? Um, and so that you know the kind of there were several things that were sort of suggested in that, right? That first he's watching her, which his sister teases him about, right? Um, secondly, that he is perceptive enough to sort of see there was some issue there, right? And he knows her well enough to know that, like, she's probably not happy with how that went based on what he saw from a distance. Um, and yet also it's clear that she is comfortable enough that when he comes up and, um, you know, and, and starts talking with her about it, you know, she's not like, this is private and who are you to write? I mean, the there is a there there is a presumption of a of a friendship between them that's already been built um so i thought that was a really nice kind of gentle way um to convey that which then enabled when they then moved on uh and moved right from there right when they then walk out uh, uh over to the to the sea and she has her moment she's not she's willing to talk to him about it right because that's already been established that she does talk to him and will talk to him. So, so yeah, I liked it. Again, I, I thought that was, um, I thought that came out really, really well. And Marie, I agree. I know it was kind of challenging and it was, that was one of the things, one of those moments, of course, which was super easy for us, right. In our original podcast discussions, uh, to just be like, so yeah, like, um, just have them, you know, get them to this point and then have them talk. Right. But I thought, I thought you guys did that really, really well. One of the other things that was kind of difficult here was the integration of Thoringwethel and Sauron yes. into this party and getting them to give – because basically they don't know all the answers that they would like the Teleri to know, the, yes. the Sindar to know. <clears throat> um, they don't know about the kinslaying. They know about the burning of the ships. They know that – Feanor, like they've got to know that Feanor rebelled from rebelled right. against the Valar to some degree. Uh, they know that Fingolfin's people crossed the ice. Right. Most of this stuff is stuff that the like, except for the burning of the ships and the rejection of the Valar, the Sindar know most of this, the same stuff. <clears throat> So basically, them trying to paint it in a sinister way without having all the information, while simultaneously trying to get some of that information, was was pretty tough. Yeah, that um, is tricky. That is tricky. Um, I okay, so I really liked. I thought the choice of having them kind of incite arguments of the the whole minstrel thing right the Diron versus Maglor who is the greatest minstrel um I thought that was kind of an inspired choice actually because that is a real I mean that's there in the text right you know like that there's the you know which one of them is the greatest you know who is named even before Maglor right um yeah but by whom and where exactly um that seemed to me a very natural um kind of tension to try to exploit. Um, 
so I thought that that was an inspired place for them to begin. Just and so Nick, as you say, they want to be, but they don't. They, they they don't know enough just to spill the beans. Um, and that I think, by the way, is excellent. I know it makes it it makes it challenging. Um, but of course, one obvious question that would have to be in any intelligent viewer's mind, if they knew, is well, why don't they just tell? Like, all you have to do is go to the Talarian, or you know, go to the Sindar, and be like, "Hey, kinslaying! Like, can I let, let me dig the the dirt yeah. about the kinslaying? Why wouldn't they, like what possible motivation uh, could uh, you know Myron and and Thorin Gwethel have for not just spilling the beans? Uh, and of right. course, the only good answer to that question is because they don't know about the beans right and of course this could be a very good reason why their attempt here fails right had they known about the kinslaying this probably would have fallen apart a lot more quickly yes yes um yeah yeah and which of course is also i like the way that that works thematically because of course that it's a, a, almost something like a, a a justification for the choice of the noldor to not tell them in the first place right um, you know that they they choose to lie about you know to withhold this information from the Sindar, um, and the success of the Feast of Reuniting kind of sort of shows the fruit of that, right? Like it's not necessarily a bad call, or at least from here it doesn't look like a bad call. Um, they're able to do this; they're able to come together, and and certainly that would have at least been very much harder had the truth of the kinslaying been known. Um, so, uh, so I, I kind of liked how that worked out as well. Um, yeah, and that's what Celeborn sees, and that's why yeah. after Galadriel reveals to him the kinslaying, he says, "No, I'm not going to tell anyone else about this." Right, right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that was interesting to see Celeborn making the same kind of decision. Um, obviously, though, uh, also very heavily influenced by his just d- desire to keep Galadriel's confidence, right? Um, and be- right, because be- the idea there is that in real life, people don't share stuff like that with someone they don't trust. Right. So Galadriel's trust in Celeborn had to be earned. Like she had to be right to be able to say that to him. So him returning the trust was important to include there. Absolutely. And there's a sense in which, like in the speech that she gives after, you know, when she says, when she tells him that she doesn't want him to, 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 you know, to, to, to swear, to promise that he won't tell anybody, um, you know, it's like gently as she revenged on him for his testing of her, <laughs> of, of her heart earlier on. Right. I mean, she's testing him here. Right. And, and he does pass that test. Um, and I agree that is certainly very important that that should happen. Um, the Luthien's role in the, uh, Marathadathad, um, uh, I can't wait to see what Phil does with this. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that too as I was going through there. Um, one thing that I was so okay, two things, two things that I was uncertain about. First, I was surprised, and I was interested. I was surprised, interested, but I was surprised that her impulse was like comedy essentially that she opposed 
the power of Sauron's divisive music uh, with comedy, essentially, you know, with, with, with we have to give full credit to um, Mike, Amy's revenge for coming up with that idea, because our initial idea was a more serious, somber take on how Mm. Luthien would show her might through music. And he came up with examples of a comedic take and mm-hmm. ha- thought how awesome it would be if we had the tra-la-la-la-lolly elves get their origin in Luthien at the Marathon or thought. And, and I got to say that, like, there's a very Tolkien thing about using laughter to dispel fear and darkness. Mm-hmm. Like, it happens frequently throughout the Lord of the Rings when somebody feels despair they they dispel that despair through laughter and, and it happens at least i think it happens at, at least on it, five different occasions that i can think of off the top the voice of saruman and then in mordor when all the stones are listening because they haven't heard laughter in ages so those are the two like really big ones but yeah there's multiple examples yeah. aemer laughing on the battlefield when he sees the the uh, ships and he throws his sword up in the air that's another big one Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would not have thought of that. I mean, I too was thinking of a more serious. In fact, I I think the way that I was kind of picturing it in my head was, if anything, something like a little parallel to the scene when Melian does the girdle, you know. Um, but but I mean. So this is like I said. I didn't. I didn't dislike it, but I was like, "Whoa!" Okay. So have you expected? Have you heard Weird Al's shaving cream? Of course. Yeah. Okay. I don't think there's any Weird Al I haven't heard. I I thought you might know that reference. So that that's the vibe that Mm -hmm. um, Amy's Mm -hmm. Revenge was thinking for 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 this. Well, where the Luthiens. And the connection to Tralalalali, right? I mean, that's that's um, kind of brilliant, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm not. I I don't oppose it. I don't oppose it. But um, I was surprised. I was definitely surprised by it. Um, I was also, so Sauron's like music machine, right? Um, was also an interesting kind of turn. <laughs> it's a hurdy gurdy. Yeah. The evil, the, the evil hurdy gurdy. Uh, I, the the hurdy gurdy kind of gets a bad rap because of the name. <laughs> And the fact that it was played by like monkey toting, right? You know, street musicians for a very long time. And alas, Philip Menzies does not have a hurdy gurdy in his um, repertoire to use for the music, so we will not actually be able to use one for this. Yeah, but you can actually kind of get the sound out of like a um, what is, what's the the smaller than a violin string instrument? I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, that. And a um, and a cello together, you can kind of get the the same sounds. Um, but 
a it's kind of a mechanical device mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. it feels very sour on to me and also it has the, so it has the drone string it's very much like a, a bagpipe in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. so it has a drone string that does kind of like this almost like a baseline thing that's going on while you're doing the melody over the top of it right um it's even some of them even have like a um a separate string that you can tap to get a rhythm going in it as well and when people have talked about having Sauron sing with more than one voice, you right. know, that was kind of one of the things that, that stuck out to me and, and that that might be in the instrument as well. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously the, I, he can't use bagpipes themselves cause singing, right. I mean, he could, but you know, yeah. The idea of him using something more mechanized was I mean, I, I did like that element of it um, that like, you know, what is what is what is Sauron's response here? His response is to go like to invent something right to invent a mechanism uh, which can help him to accomplish this thing uh, that he wasn't able to accomplish otherwise. That's nice. Right. I like that. Um yeah. And he's not really inventing on his own. He's taking pieces of other instruments. Right. That was the thing I really wanted to include is he he corrupts elvish instruments to make his own thing because evil can't create things on its own. It can only corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's nice. I like that. I like that. Um, good. Well, let's see. I'm really tempted to go on and discuss things from episode six, too, but it's getting late. Uh, maybe we should save the... Um, because of course, the primary thing I want to talk about is the catch and release plot uh, of episode six. Um, How did you like it? I was completely taken in. I was <laughs> utterly, yes. totally taken in. Uh, I was. Uh, oh, that's yeah. so awesome. I was completely bamboozled. <laughs> yeah, I was going through, and I'm like. I really, I'm not sure about this. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't like this much at all. And then at the end, I was like, oh, no way. Like, that was awesome. Oh, it was, that was so cool. That was so cool. Uh, really, yeah, yeah, no, that was excellent. Um, oh, and the eclipse. Oh, the timing of the eclipse and the, the whole, like, you know, the sun thing. And, uh, and I was hoping and hoping and hoping that we were going to get like the final scene of like Morgoth standing there being worshiped by all the men. Like that was fantastic. I was so glad uh, that we got that. Um, well, what did you think of Tom Bombadil before that? Oh, fantastic. I love the Bombadil. Oh yeah. The, the, and you did, you even did. The, and by the way, you did an excellent job with the Bombadil verse, right? That was, that was, that was well done. The rhythm was good. Uh, uh, That's all we had. <laughs> that was very good. That was very good. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I like the, 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 I mean, of course, like the, the, the one criticism of, of course, is that like the, the, the Tom Bombadil cameo kind of uh, significantly interrupts the gravity of the moment, right? Which is otherwise really like sandwiching Tom Bombadil between like Morgoth being worshipped as a god, mm. you know, like like basically, and let's cut to the fall of man, right? On the one side, and then you know, the despair of Edelos on the other side, and sandwiched in between is Tom Bombadil. Uh, was, 
I mean, it certainly does interrupt the the uh, the, the the solemnity of the occasion. Um, but I did really like it, the cameo. Mm. Yeah, I don't think we've really talked about a Bombadil cameo for this uh, for this season. So yeah, no, I don't think we did talk about that. Um, but the eclipse is a really uh, is a really cool opportunity um, because, of course, the eclipse is one of the few you know events that's going to be you know beyond even just Balerian. So. Um, uh, yes, there's yeah. no astronomy in this world, so the solar eclipse happens everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, there's definitely astronomy. Mytheros invented it without a pencil or paper while hanging from a cliff. <laughs> the point being <laughs> right. that on a flat well, earth... He must really like astronomy because I had him name all his fortresses after constellations. Yes, <sighs> there you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, no, I was actually thinking about the astronomy element of it, but yeah, it's challenging on a flat earth. So therefore it's whatever you want it to be. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's what we went with. <laughs> and having it be, as you like some, it. Somebody will write an angry blog about it somewhere and we just <laughs> hear. Yeah, well, I mean. Yes, there, uh, there's things that I'm willing to not worry about when it comes to realism, and that's kind of one of them. Uh, yeah, I th- I agree that uh, astronomy, given again that we are still dealing with a flat a flat world here, astronomy would be a rather peculiar place for people to get too upset. Honestly, um, <clears throat> at least until the other bit of realism that we kind of had to ignore. The other bit of realism we kind of had to ignore was how do the cats capture anger on Nephilim when they don't have thumbs? <laughs> but like that's I mean, why we had the elves actually dragging anger out of the right. cell because. Because they have thumbs. thumbs. That's right. <laughs> These are my personal thumb slaves, right? That's why cats keep us around in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, they need us to open the cans of food, so <laughs> Exactly. That's why they that's that's why the cats are still tolerating us, you you you're saying? Um yeah. yeah, Sharon says they, 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 they probably did it the same way that Bjorn's dogs served dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relatively few opposable thumbs in Bjorn's house too, but they seem to manage. Um, in fact, a lot careful. of them don't even have paws. <laughs> yes. yes. Like when it talks about the ponies coming in and bringing stuff in, I'm like, all right, okay. <laughs> Listen, Ron. <laughs> Let me tell you something a little bit about ponies. <laughs> they have mouths. Come on now. <sighs> Yeah, seriously, how hard single is it digits, single digits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but they're very clever with their lips. You know, it's all good. They've got, they can do all kinds of things. Um. Well, but see, there, I think it's it's sort of it's easy enough to just to kind of draw the veil over that, right? I mean, it's certainly easy enough for the cats to capture them, right? So you know, you've you've got the you know like the cats of cats have like pounced upon them. 
uh, you know, and to, to, to end up, end the scene with them clearly in the power of the cats, and then they're back in Angband in the next scene, and we don't necessarily need to know how exactly they were transported. We don't know that the cats are alone, necessarily, right? Um, and with the... Um, yeah, they, know, just, they, 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 they have, like, a support yeah. team. Could easily do. We can't have any orcs out in the sunlight right now. The orcs are not an option outside orcs of Angband. Of course, but during what those people are and werewolves yes. are, like it's not like they can't have backup. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I, 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 I think that that seems just because it's only the cats who are present in the initial, you know, ambush, doesn't necessarily mean that they're the only ones ever there. So, yeah, we can have some unstated support team with opposable thumbs who's just coming along behind the cats. Uh, can be, that could be perfectly fine. I have to admit, it didn't even occur to me as I was, as I was reading through. Um, and, and that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. 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 That's good. Um, yeah. So the wolves, the, you know, uh, drug Lewin and his people can play the part of Bjorn's dogs. So it's all, it's all fine. It's all fine. Um, yeah, good. Okay, well, we'll talk more about the Catch and Release program, you know, about Ethelwald's experience, um, and, of course, about Thurin Gwethel and Círdan in Episode 6. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk, we'll, we'll, we'll start with that a little bit as we talk about some about uh, episodes that we didn't quite finish, Episode 6, but that's okay, because we're going to get more of the Catch and Release program for next time. Um, so we'll see if we can get through. I don't know if we'll be able to get all the way through nine, but, uh, uh, let's, we're, we've, we've been doing, we've been doing the season roughly in quarters here. So let's see if we can get towards episode nine next time. Um, and, uh, uh, and we should be able to lump in some of those discussions from six, uh, into, into that. So. Okay. All right. So six through nine for next time. Six through nine for next time. Well, yes, exactly. Six through nine. The rest of six and then seven, eight, and nine next time. That'll be the plan. Okay, great. Um, and our next session, the next session in question, is Thursday, November 7th at 10 o'clock p.m. Um, so that'll be, so we, we sh- will probably have two more episodes, at least two more, maybe three. And no more than three, but at least two uh, more episodes talking about the scripts. Um, and yes, casting nominations are in progress. So go to the message board and submit your choices for uh, casting for the characters. We had our uh, a, a, our preliminary casting uh, discussion when we were talking about the characters and, and what we were sort of seeing and imagining for those. Uh, but specific nominations are now needed and we're going to do our casting voting and then we'll review that uh, towards the end of our post-season uh, discussions here. And of course, there's still time to... Uh, 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 you know, make some discussion board comments and things about uh, about the scripts and everything as we're moving forward. So six through nine uh, for uh, uh, for next time. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me uh, again. Uh, I, I, I have been uh, and I just wanted to say again how much I am enjoying reading uh, these scripts. They have been really, really enjoyable to read, uh, and uh, I, I, and I've just been so impressed uh, by so much of them. So, uh, Rihanna, you're doing a wonderful job with the scripts, and and you guys as a team uh, have you know clearly thought through these things really, really well. Uh, I am very impressed and looking forward to uh, 
uh, to six through nine next time. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. All right. So we will sign off now and we'll see you guys again in two weeks. So thanks for listening and Godspeed.